It says that Josiah did something that no other king in the history of Judah did, not even Hezekiah, who was a righteous man. He tore down the high places. And I think when we talk about these high places, I think this is, I mean, it, it literally happened. Don't think I'm reading the Bible allegorically, but <clears throat> this is a metaphor of deliverance. It's driving out the demonic strongholds that had infiltrated society. And when you read the account of his, of his reformation, among the places where there were high places were the temple of the Lord, including right on the roof. They put high places up. They're called high places because they're higher. They might be on hilltops or mountains, but anyway. So he is commended for having done that, for going after deliverance aggressively. Um, a lot of churches are still figuring that out, but anyway. The other thing, though, that is interesting is, and this was, this was actually his downfall. Sometimes our greatest strength is our greatest weakness, so we have to be careful of that. Um, what became Josiah's downfall is when Pharaoh Necho came out to fight at the Battle of Carchemish, which, by the way, if there's a book called The Ten Most Significant Military Engagements or Significant Battles, I think that's the title, Ten Most Significant Battles in History. One of the top ten is the Battle of the Carchemish Straits on the, on the northern part of the Euphrates River. And what happened was Nico came out to fight Nebuchadnezzar, and Josiah decided to challenge Nico, and Nico says, why are, you, why are you coming out? I have nothing to fight with you about. I'm just passing through. Leave me alone. I won't harm you. But Josiah went after him anyway, and Josiah is wounded mortally in battle and dies as a result of that because he'd become so, I guess, cocksure of his uh, ability to succeed that he decided to have a go at, uh, at the Pharaoh. And as a result of that battle, Nico was weakened enough that he could not prevail against Nebuchadnezzar, and so the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish, and that opened the way to the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jews. So even though he was a very godly man, he's probably the best king that Judah ever had, other than David, um, his strength became his weakness. So just mind that one. It's a, it's a really important lesson. All right, there we go. See, it wasn't too bad. It only took three minutes. All right, uh, let me just give a couple merch pitches. Outreach and evangelism. Um, by the way, our Orbis school is starting a new school class um, in February on evangelism and discipleship. If you really believe this is a season of revival, you probably need this unless you've had some recent training in evangelism because most Christians are very awkward about sharing their faith. They don't do it well. They don't know how to turn a normal conversation about what would you like with your order, sir or ma'am, into a, and by the way, how are you with God? How do you get there? Most people don't understand that bridge. There's an evangelistic, it's a skill actually. There might be a gift that rides on top of the skill, but you gotta have the skill set. So this might get you started, but I'd encourage you to take a look when we start um, releasing uh, marketing material about that course because I wanna see every single person that we know take this evangelism and discipleship class. By the way, what is discipleship? Once you catch the fish, you got to clean the fish. And so it's not enough just to pray a prayer with somebody. we got to bring them in and get them grounded and help them get rid of all the old stuff that's still part of their life. Uh, this is an essential part. And a lot of times people have been in church so long, they're more or less cleaned up, and so they don't realize the value of that. Anyway, enough on that. Kingdom Operator Manual. What is it like to live life on mission? This is the teaching of Jesus out of Matthew chapter 10, but it's been recast into the language of a special operations warfighter. And what does it mean to have a kingdom mentality in that sense as we bring the kingdom to the darkness of this age? Uh, light topics suitable for bedtime listening for children. Advanced topics in deliverance, curse-breaking. <laughs> Mommy, what's a curse? <laughs> anyway, you might want that one. Ministering to grief. We had a, a big move of the Lord to, uh, last night dealing with grief. 
You want to know more about how we think about it and grounding for teaching in it? This teaching will help you. Basic prophetic ministry, if you're getting started, there you go. And again, my book. Books are heavy. I don't like flying them around the country. The airlines don't like taking them because it makes my bag heavier than they like it to be. So help me by buying one. (laughs) Give it as a Christmas gift or something. All right, there you go. Catch that guy there, Jason. All right. Hold that. <clears throat> All right. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them to the 15th chapter of Exodus. And uh, this is building on our theme of a season of breakthrough. Exodus 15, verse 22 says this, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water." Well, in any relationship, there is a progressive unfolding of those who are involved in that relationship. This is true in friendship. It's true in dating and marriage. Um, It's also true in our relationship with God. Um, On Tuesday, I am having my 36th anniversary with my wife. Yep. One friend of mine likes to joke with my current wife, but I only need to say my wife because I've only had one. Um, And I know her better now than I did after five years or 10 years of marriage, or for that matter, after 25 years of marriage. Um, And so it is with her and back towards me. This is just the nature of development in relationship. Now, let me just pause in what I'm saying and tell you that um, I'm hoping that if this sermon goes off the way it should, that you will have a new revelation of God this morning. I, I literally hope that that will happen. And it's, there are no new scriptures being written, but there are old treasures waiting to be found in the scripture. In fact, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a scribe who brings forth new treasure from old. Well, scribes were keepers of the book uh, in the... Uh, in the old covenant period. So um, I hope that this happens tonight. So our understanding of God grows over time, but we have to say this, it always is going to grow consistent with his own revelation of himself. He will never contradict what he has previously revealed. And that's a fundamental tenet of revelation, and it's part of the, um, it's part of the holiness of God, that, that he does not change. In fact, he says... I change not, and therefore you, O sons of Israel, are not destroyed. And we know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I say that because there is a lot of teaching swirling around in the body of Christ, which is perhaps deliberately, uh, certainly someone's behind it, so there is a deliberation in it, but it may not always be a human deliberation. It could be a demonic one or a satanic one to be even more pointed about it. Um, so there is some intelligence behind it, but, but sometimes the human agents are, uh, I don't know, willing fools. And they are teaching things that are actually not correct. And this is infecting the body of Christ with our understanding of God. And there are multiple dimensions in which this is going on. I'm not really turning this into a polemic sermon, so I'm not going to address some of the ones that are among those that are stuck in my craw right here. Uh, I want to 
state of the text, and I want to talk about what's going on in this passage, because I want to recover something that is actually a fundamental truth that I don't think is well understood in the modern church. And we'll worry about dealing with all the disparate teaching some other time. So, new revelation, or growing revelation, must be consistent with prior revelation. Future revelations update and clarify what we already know, but they don't contradict what he's already revealed. And so this is for our benefit because it allows us to grow in what we know about God. And we might even add to that, we can also build on what our forefathers and our foremothers knew. And this is important because the scripture itself says, one generation shall commend your works to another in order that they may know you. And so... A a huge part of what I know about the Lord, not all of it, I have my own walk with God, but a huge part of what got me started was what I learned from my grandmother and grandfather when I was a boy living with them because they had a deep faith in the Lord and they were able to pass that on to me. My mother probably should have been more active with that than she was, but she was a weak believer for much of her life. She was a believer, but not of that strength. And so... um, So it's the intention of God actually to have, I would say, multi-layered families, intergenerational families. It's a known fact sociologically. It's not in the Bible, but it's a known fact uh, sociologically that children often learn better from their grandparents than they do from their parents anyway. It's just the nature of living with mom and dad every day, and they make you brush your teeth and change your clothes and clean up your room and all that. So there's this kind of a natural towards mom and dad that eventually goes away, (laughs) parents be encouraged um, <laughs> whereas grandma and grandpa they still have that kind of authority role but they don't have the enforcer role and so in most societies children tend to learn very well from their grandparents hey you out there with gray hair are you listening you have a role in raising your grandchildren in the ways of God okay so in the account that we've just read What's about to happen here, they always say, tell people what you're going to tell them. So in this account, the Lord was about to provide a new revelation of himself. And it's interesting because when Moses had gone before Pharaoh, one of the things that the Lord had instructed him to say, so you know, prophesy this to Pharaoh, my people will go three days into the wilderness in order to worship me. Now, that's important because if you didn't catch it, it said Moses made them set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days into the wilderness of Shur. And they're about to get a revelation of God. Do you know when revelations of God come, what does it do? It should provoke worship. In fact, in the story of Abraham, Genesis 12, 18, God gave him the first revelation of who he was. We'll get to it in a minute in the sermon, but uh, I won't tell you what it is yet. We'll just say this. After Abraham got that revelation, it says he built an altar, and there he worshiped the Lord. So getting a revelation of God is intended by God to provoke a new form, a new extravagance in worship, a new understanding of wonder and mystery, a new connection with him, because we now understand something of who he is, what his heart is, what his nature is, that we previously maybe heard about or didn't know at all. And in the scripture, I think I mentioned this this week, and there are 365 names of God, one for every day of the year. And we tend to emphasize maybe the top, I don't know, half dozen, but we don't always get into these other ones. And um, one of them is this business of the Lord being healer. So let's look at this passage. It says they came to Shur. In Hebrew, Shur means the wall. Well, isn't that interesting? We have a saying, you know, for those who run marathons. I used to, but you wouldn't know it now. (laughs) I try, but it's really hard when you're traveling. Okay, so they come to the wall, or we might say in the marathon community, they hit the wall. Sometimes when God wants to give you a new revelation of himself, he will literally put something in your path, not to harm you, 
but that you will hit the wall, that you will come to the end of yourself, that you will have an understanding you could not have had without that opposition and hardship and difficulty in order that he can take you to the other side of it so you will come to that understanding. Remember this, if you get nothing else out of this sermon, if you forget every other thing I say, remember this, every single thing God does, he does because he loves you. Every single command he gives you, he gives because he loves you. Not because he's out to get you, but included in that, as it says in Hebrews, you know, sometimes we had fathers and they disciplined us and we, we respected them for it. it this, is a, this is the nature of love. There is kind of a corrective process to it. And not, if you came out of a bad home where beatings were common or sexual abuse or whatever, it can be hard to understand this. But, but just because I don't agree with you or just because I'm correcting you doesn't mean I hate you. And I think a lot of people carry around that baggage, that bondage, um, and the enemy in particular loves to sow those lies. If people would just understand that, they wouldn't buck so hard against so many of the things that are in the Bible. They'd say, I don't even understand this, but what I know is he loves me, so I surrender, Lord. Let's just go there. That would be a really good way to live your Christian life. All right, so they hit the wall. And the Lord had said, they will go three days into the wilderness. Not only had he said it, he'd said it three times. I'll give you the addresses if you're taking notes. Exodus 5.1, Exodus 7.16, and Exodus 8.1. Three times Moses had said this to Pharaoh. And so what's happening is the place of testing becomes the place of worship. How many of you know that when God puts you through a test, now he doesn't tempt, that's different. But when he allows a test to come your way, when you come out on the other side, what do you say? Hallelujah, God, I am so thankful. You, you took me through that thing. You are so amazing. Bless you. I just want to see this happen again and again and again. Not the test, maybe, but the victory for other people. And here's the other thing we often don't realize. When God takes us out of Egypt, he has to take Egypt out of us. And think about these people. They have been, they have been slaves to Pharaoh for over 400 years. Now, I want to be really careful about the way I say this, so don't hear what I'm not saying, please. Hear what I am saying. But in the United States of America, slavery was an institution for approximately 240 years before it was abolished. It was slightly over that, but I'm just giving you a round number. Now, I'm not in any way justifying it, I'm not saying it's okay. Even the founding fathers, many of them, had heartburn about the fact that we were allowing slavery when they wrote the Constitution. It's clear from the Scripture, Paul says those who are slave traders will be judged by the Lord. And so it's quite clear that in the mind of God, this is not okay. And so we don't want to endorse or support this at all. I, I hope that's a clear enough um, dismissal and condemnation of slavery. But what I want you to, to think about is this. If you see the damage that slavery did to the black community, and, and if you live in the United States, you, you, you see the social pathologies that arise from the destruction of the family. When you can sell off a father or a mother or the children, you can do what you want to them. When they're, when they're stripped of property rights, by the way, there's a commentary on Marxism too, but I digress. Um, when they're stripped of property rights, when they have no empowerment whatsoever, and you see the level of destruction that that can that that can wreak, 240 years of that, can wreak on a people. And, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation was in 1864. So you've got 36 years left in the 19th century, 100 years in the 20th century, and you've got 23 years in this century. We're like 160 years downrange from slavery, and look at how much damage is still there in the community. Imagine how bad it was for the Jews. 400 years of this. And not only that, they're, they're not just slaves. They're in a pagan land and they're worshiping pagan gods. Oh, there's this kind of distant memory of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's part of their oral tradition. There may have been some scrolls or something that were written down, but it wouldn't have been a lot because Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And so there would have been just some maybe very minor things that were copied and recopied and shared among these imprisoned captive Jews, but they really didn't even know who God was by this time. Think of the destruction 
of these people. Think of the, what we call poverty mentality or the orphan mentality. We use this kind of language today in Renewal Christianity. Imagine how bad it is and the Lord's going to have to take all of that Egypt out of them. That takes some time, doesn't it? It's kind of hard to do. And so, just think of that as you're coming out of captivity, as you're moving into this new season. What part of Egypt in me needs to go? Well, it says they came to the water of Marah. And three times the word Marah is used. The scripture elsewhere says, out of the mouth of two or more witnesses shall every matter be established. And so what this passage is doing is God makes them confront bitter water. He knows what's going on here. And the people are grumbling because they're basically saying, the Lord brought us out here to kill us. And we, we see that very language elsewhere in scripture. This reveals the very nature of what's in their soul because of that slavery mentality, what had, what had come to them. Oh, God brought us to here, and, and when there's no water, what are we going to do? And they're filled with bitterness, bitterness of soul. In fact, this kind of bitterness may not be directed at a specific person. It could be. Sometimes we have that in our own lives, but sometimes bitterness is more of a, it's a global affectation. And we see a sample of it in the story of Ruth, where we won't turn right now, but we have the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi's two sons have died, and she's left with these two daughters-in-law, one of whom takes off. Ruth says, I'll be loyal. Where you go, I'll go, right? So they, this, is, this becomes the story. But Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Marah, same word, because my life is bitter. The Lord has taken my sons from me. The Lord has taken my husband from me. And so she has that small, shriveled up, mean, and I don't mean mean like cruel, I mean mean like small mentality about God. He's a, he's a Scrooge, he's a miser, he'll give me nothing. He took my men and I'm alone. That's the spirit of Marah. And many Christians carry that. These Jews were carrying it. And so the Lord took them right to the water of Marah that they would look in the water and see their own reflection, so to speak. And they couldn't drink it because it was bitter. Bitter, bitter, bitter. And so they grumbled and they said, what shall we drink? <clears throat> and Moses cried out to the Lord, now, when Moses cries out to the Lord, God opens his eyes. Now, when he opens his eyes, it isn't quite clear how that happens. It's not stated in the text. But we do know of Moses that elsewhere, the way he had gotten a revelation was he had been cruising through the desert with the sheep of Jethro, his father-in-law. And it happens that there's a bush that's on fire. Now, when we hear that, especially if you live in Ohio where you have a lot of green trees and rivers and things, this might not really make sense to you. But I'm from Southern California, and most of Southern California is desert. I mean, we, we've settled it, and there's you know, artificial plumbing and water and whatnot. But, but really, we live in a desert. And when I was a younger man and I had a trained hunting dog, I used to do a lot of quail hunting in the deserts of California. It's like my passion. And uh, on more than one occasion, I would see what we call dry lightning strikes, and bushes would spontaneously burst into flames, whether because of a dry lightning strike or because just in the heat of the desert, maybe it'd be 120, 130 degrees, um, the, the creosote, the, the volatile oils that are the sap of these bushes out there, it reaches a certain flashpoint, and poof, these bushes burst into flame. But when you see it, and it's not common, I think I've seen it maybe two or three times, but when it happens, those bushes are quickly consumed and they burn down to nothing and it's over. And the thing that Moses notices is he sees a burning bush and I can only imagine after 40 years in the desert, Moses has seen a few burning bushes. I don't know how many, but a few. And when he looks at that bush, as he looks at it, he goes... How strange, that bush is not being consumed. 
I will take a look and get closer. And that's where the revelatory moment occurs for Moses. It's when he slows down. And so he turns in, or maybe this way, I don't know. But anyway, he sees this bush and he starts to get close. What is that? Why is that bush not being consumed? And then... It's only then that he perceives the form of the angel of the Lord in the bush. And the Lord says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. And he gets his revelation. We'll, we'll visit that story in a moment. But I, I want to use that as a teaching point because what's happening here by the waters of Marah is similar, I think. Now, it could have been that there's just this log or tree, either one, it's the same, same word in Hebrew. But there, it may have been just there and he didn't notice it. Or it may have been that he'd looked at it and like, yeah, there's a log or a tree there, no big deal. But somehow the Lord draws his eye to it, and as he does, it's a moment of revelation for him. Similar to what happens in the burning bush as just described. Are we all together? Okay. So however it happened, one way or the other, as I just described, <clears throat> he sees this log or this tree. And again, it's the same word in Hebrew. And so as he cries out to the Lord, as he says, we're in trouble, God. I don't have water for these people. And by the way, this is a fairly large problem because the scripture tells us 600,000 men on foot had gone out from Egypt. And in normal populations where there hasn't been you know, famine or war in particular that tends to kill off men differentially, usually there's about one baby boy born for every baby girl. It's, it's a pretty close to 50-50. It's not quite 50-50. There's always a few more boys, and it's probably because the Lord in his wisdom knows we may need a few more men because of death due to things like war and conflict. But generally, it's pretty close to half and half. So if we have got 600,000 men, we probably have 600,000 women. So that's 1.2 million. And when you think about the fact that you put men and women together, you get babies, and they don't have birth control in those days. Um, who knows how many people are here? This could be, I don't know, if you've got four kids for every couple, suddenly 1.2 million is like 3.6 million. Now, that's, that's getting to be bigger than metropolitan Columbus, right? I mean, we're talking, we're talking a fairly large group of people, and they all need water. So we need millions of gallons of water here. This is not just some little give me a stream to drink from. So Moses cries out to the Lord. That's a good thing. He's turning to God in the midst of a, of a crisis, and the Lord shows him this tree, this log, wherever it is. I assume it's sitting by the water, but maybe not. And, and it doesn't need to be a big one, right? It doesn't say how big it was, but mostly in that country over there, they have what they call broom trees. And a really big broom tree might have a trunk like this. It's not that big of a piece of wood. But Moses takes it and he throws it into the water and the water becomes street, sweet. Now, by, by having this happen, what the Lord is doing is he is giving Moses a prophetic uh, foreshadowing. It's 14 centuries early but he's giving him a prophetic foreshadowing of the cross. And what this is really telling us is the marah in your life can actually be healed because of the power of the cross. And we even have this language elsewhere, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Okay, and so I think, I think this is why some of the translations say the Lord showed him a tree. But, but again, it's a foreshadowing of, of the life of Jesus. Moses actually has several foreshadowings of this type. I've taught elsewhere on his revelation on the mountain that, uh, that uh, the solution to sin is actually found in Jesus, and he realizes that this is in the man, uh, Christ Jesus. So, All right, so now the, the water is sweet, and so they can all drink, and it's because of this power of the cross, and that's the only way you're going to get Egypt out of you just like it was the only way they were going to get Egypt out of them. And so there the Lord made them a statute and a rule, and he tested them. Now this is interesting that it uses this language. Statutes are what we say is the law. So when your legislature or your city council or somebody passes a law, that's, this is the law of the land, but almost always... Right behind it come what they call nowadays the regulations, 
This is how it's lived out. This is how it, this is what's meant to be interpreted. This is what you do. And so the Lord gave them not only a statute, but he gave them the rule. The word regulation is related to the word rule. In English, it's a common Latin root, regula. Um, and so what's happening is, here's how you're to live this out. And so God says, you have to follow the spirit and the letter. You gotta follow not only what I want you to do conceptually, but let me show you how you implement this in the right way. And he tests them. That's an interesting word. He's not tempting them, he's testing them. And the test is, will you follow the statute and the rule? Yes or no? It's a simple yes, no answer. We always want to make it complex. Well, it depends. Oh, I sound like the president of Harvard and UPenn. A few people got it. He made for them a statute and a rule, and he tested them, and he said this, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. The word there for voice is coal. It's the living voice of God. Now, oftentimes, we get the coal, Yahweh, out of this book. As we read it, it comes alive to us. But there are other times that the Lord may speak to us, as the prophets say, and the word of the Lord came to me. So either way... The point is, when God's word comes to you, when his voice comes to you, not just the davarim, the words themselves, but the actual voice, the intonation, the, we, I would say the kindness and the inflection, what you understand by the very way he asks the question. When that comes to you, you have to listen to it. He says, if you will listen to that living voice of God, and of course, if you're going to have a living voice of God with you, you have to be cultivating the living voice of God. We tend to call it relationship, but... It's, it's beyond even relationship. There are certain ways that God wants us to approach him in order that we would hear him better. Why? Because he loves us. If you will do that and do that which is right in his eyes, there are the regulations. There are the implementations. If you'll do it his way and give ear to his commandments, now he's backing up to the very precept that undergirds those regulations. If you will do that and keep all of his statutes, here's my deal with you. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. There's your revelation of God. Now when he says that, this is the fourth great revelation of his name that he's ever given in history. Only the fourth. And so what that tells you is he is really eager that we would know this. I already said there's 365 names of God. And so this, this basically makes it into the top 1% or the first 1%. So this is one of the most fundamental things you can know about God. In fact... It's so fundamental, you should know him as healer sequentially before you know him as father. So let's unpack all of that. The first revelation that God gives of himself <clears throat> is when he calls Abraham. Now at that time, Abraham's name is Avram. And when he calls him, he says, I am the Lord Almighty, walk before me and be upright. Now, that's not a lot of information, but it's something. And the name that he gives to himself as he reveals himself to the father of faith, Avram, who becomes Avraham, that name that he gives to himself in Hebrew is El Shaddai. Now, the word El, or El is the way we'd say it in English, but I'm trying to get my Hebrew better, so I try to use it when I can. The word El was a common name in the Middle East for God, any God of any kind. It's like we use the word God, right? Shiva is a God, and our Father is a God, and Allah is a God. God here doesn't mean a specific God. It's a noun. It's a generic noun. Does that make sense to everybody? But what he does is he says, but I'm not just any old ale. There's a lot of ales around. My name is El Shaddai. And that means I am the all-powerful God. That's the very first revelation of God. There is nobody who is more powerful than I am. That's a really important point when your fourth revelation is going to be I'm the healer. Because what it tells you is there is no sickness that can stand before him. Right? 
but they, they aren't connecting these dots yet. I'm, I'm doing it for you to just kind of help you think through this sermon. All right, so God gives Abraham actually a calling quite similar to what's going on in this passage. He says, walk before me and be tamim in Hebrew. Be holy, be upright, follow my ways, do what I want you to do. Now, he doesn't even have a book yet, right? He's just got this little revelation, and it's like, oh, yeah, and by the way, uh, now that you've left your home and your father and everything, uh, you know, just navigate by what the voice tells you. And you're like, wow, there's not a lot of guardrails in this one. But I'm going to take you through the length and breadth of the land. I'm going to show you everything I'm going to give to you. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. He's like, okay, what do I got to do? Just walk before me. Do it my way. That's all you need to increase, thrive, and prosper. Just do it my way. There's a learning in that for you too. Right? And so it wasn't enough just to know that there was a God. It wasn't enough just to know about God. God himself expected, and watch this, that a particular lifestyle would follow becoming his. And that's why later on he clarifies this, and he says, you got to follow my statutes and my rules. Hold on, my timer just went off. That helps me stay on track and not over-preach. All right. So now they, and he says to Abraham, hey, by the way, good news, bad news. You get all this land, but uh, you're not going to actually inherit it yourself. You're going to inherit it through your children and your grandchildren. In the fourth generation, they will come up out of Egypt. Then they will inherit the land. But you, Abraham, sucks to be you. I am your exceedingly great reward, not this piece of property. Right? Remember that? Okay. And so they go down to Egypt and they've been now in captivity for 400 years. Now, we don't know quite exactly how, how early or late in Abraham's life this happens. But what we do know is Abraham receives his calling to leave his father's house when he's 75 years old. And he dies at 175 years old. So there's a century of walking with God that, that he goes through, and it's somewhere kind of at the front end of that that this revelation comes. So now that they've been in Egypt for a bit, um, it, it may well be pushing 450 years or more, because remember, Moses had tried prematurely, there we are relying on our own strength again, to deliver the people of Egypt from a taskmaster. He has to flee from Pharaoh, and he goes 40 years into the wilderness. So we got, let's say, 30 on the front end. We've got 40 on the back end. We might be nearing 500 years since that revelation, and that's all they have to go on if they're Jewish. Now, how long is 500 years? Well, this is 2023. 500 years ago, it was 1523. The Reformation happened in 1517. So it's about as far away from us as the entire period of Protestantism. I guess I'm just trying to help you frame what are we really talking about here? Now, I guess things didn't move quite as quickly back then. They didn't have the internet and, you know, knowledge increasing 2x every 18 months and all that going on. But the point is, it's a long wait. But now, Moses is going through the desert one day. He's in exile from his Egyptian position and the land of Egypt and he has this burning bush experience that I've already described and when he approaches the burning bush the Lord says to him haya asher haya I am who I am and so with this God gives a second revelation this is only the second revelation of God in history the first one was I'm all-powerful But the second one is, I am sovereign and self-sufficient, which means I give answer to no one and no one empowers me or gives me anything that I need. I do what I want to do. And so Moses goes with that name when he goes to Pharaoh. Well, that's also a good thing when you have a God on your side who doesn't need to give an answer to anybody, who is sovereign and self-sufficient. And the third revelation is when he clarifies that what he had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was actually incomplete. They knew him as Ale, but they didn't actually know his name. And so right after, well, a couple chapters later, 
after this revelation of Hayah, Asher Hayah, the self-sufficient one, God gives yet another revelation of himself. And, and by the way, when the new revelations are coming, one is usually enough to sustain a whole movement. But note that this is all happening in close proximity, so we're getting two and pretty soon a third revelation of God that are being released. This is how you know this is really the shifting of an era, the, the change of an epoch. Does this make sense? Okay, so in Exodus 6, verses 2 to 3, the Lord says, my name, in different, different versions of the Bible say it differently, but in Hebrew, we might say my name, the way Americans say it is Yahweh, or Yahava, if we want to uh, point it in proper Hebrew according to the Masoretic text. And this means the self-existent one, which is to say he has no beginning and no end and he is infinite. All-powerful, gives answer to no one and needs nothing, and infinite. Well, this is all pretty interesting stuff, but it's rather impersonal, don't you think? How do I relate to a God like that when I'm a human being that's subject to the the passions of the flesh and the weaknesses of life and people grow old and die. And, um, you know, Moses had seen people die. Abraham had watched his own father lie down and die. <clears throat> and so in addition to all of that, the Lord would ultimately go on and he would reveal just a little later in Exodus, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here. It, it's not the passage we read, but in Exodus 34, he also gives himself the names um, Rahum Hanum Arak, which means merciful, gracious, and long-suffering or compassionate, slow to anger. But those names aren't known yet. Moses knows him by these three names, though. He knows him as El Shaddai. He knows him as Hayah Asher Hayah. This one he inherited. This one he got himself by direct revelation at the burning bush. And then he has this third revelation of Yahava or Yahweh. And so he, he, he knows these too. This is part of what makes Moses the greatest of the prophets. And now here they are at the waters of Marah. God has rescued them as he had at the Red Sea, as he had from slavery. He's rescued them because he is all-powerful, because he does give no answer to anyone, because he is that one who he says he is. He is without beginning and end. And he says, if you will follow in the way that I want you to follow, I'm renewing the covenant I made with Abraham 500 years ago. If you will do that, I will make sure that none of the Egyptian diseases come on you. I am your healer. That's the fourth name that he gives himself. Yehovah or Yahweh or Yahava Rapha the Lord your healer. He was so eager that the people would know him as healer that this is the fourth revelation. Think of all the other things he could have revealed himself to be, but he chose this one to be number four. And so when we look at that, and we understand that this tree or this log represents the cross, it says, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water. So now that we've hit the wall at Shur and we've dealt with the bitterness of Egypt and the Lord's taking Egypt out of us, now I'm going to take you to 12 springs of water. How many tribes does Israel have? One spring for every tribe. How about that? Now, we could preach a whole sermon just off of that, but let me just say this. Every stream that the Lord is raising up in this new apostolic period has its own source of revelation, or, or emphasis, probably a better way to say it. Um, and that is their stream of water. But these 12 streams are all near each other, and so part of what God is doing is he's causing a lot of these apostolic streams to converge and to commingle. All rivers run to the sea. And when they get to the sea, they commingle in the sea. What is the sea? It represents God. The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so this cross-fertilization or what Bob Jones called cross-pollinization, which isn't actually a word. The word is cross-pollination. Um, that which is going on right now is part of what he intends. But each stream has its own 
understanding that's been given to them. So there's 12 springs of water, but watch this. There's 70 palm trees. Now, in that country, there are lots of palm trees around, but let's be clear. These are not coconut palms. These are date palms. And why are there 70? Well, if you go forward in, in the Pentateuch, into the story of the Exodus, in Numbers chapter 11, it says that there were 70 elders who were called to go out to the, to the tent of meeting to receive of the Holy Spirit that was on Moses. You can find that story in Numbers 11 and specific verses, verse 28. And so what happens is God sets up a tree, a source of life, a source of fruit, a source of food which is no longer bitter but sweet that for all of these elders who are helping lead Israel, there would be the sweetness of the Lord in their lips and that they would be sustained and nourished by God's goodness. Now, it's literally true that there were dates and it's literally true that every elder could sit under his own tree, but I'm helping you understand the prophetic implications of this passage. And so... They've left their bitterness behind and they've entered into the realm of sweetness. And as they're doing this, they've actually made a covenant with God. Now they will be called upon at different points to renew the covenant as they go through the desert before they ultimately enter the promised land and so forth. And so what we learn from this is that all tests eventually end, but they only end when we pass them. So the best thing you can do is like I said, die quickly. Just let your flesh die. Say yes to God. Your way's better than mine. All of that. And so when that happens, now we come to the place of blessing and they're out of Egypt and, um, and Egypt is out of them. And so they rested at a place of pools and palms, one pool for each tribe and one palm tree for each leader. Now, all of this is important because I said one of the names of God, the third one is the name Yahweh or Yahava. By the way, just to be clear, if I were doing this sermon among Jews, and I've lately been doing a lot of ministry among Jews, um, I would never use the name Yahweh. Christians are way too loose with this name. The Jews do not utter the name. They're afraid that they might accidentally take it in vain, violating the commandment of the Lord. And so when they get to that name, they say Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name. And everybody knows what the name is, but they don't say the name. They use the moniker, the name, in lieu of the word Yahweh. Does that make sense to everybody? Did I say that clear enough? Okay. But what's interesting is that when Jesus comes, the scripture says, Matthew 121, the angel declared, he shall be called Yeshua, Jesus in English, because he would save or sozo his people from their sins. Well, Yeshua is a shortened version of Yahashua, which draws on that name Yahweh, which is to say Yahweh saves us. But he doesn't just save us in the sense of being born again and having our sins forgiven. He does that. But he saves us sozo in a complete sense. Physical healing... It's available in Jesus. Inner healing, it's available in Jesus. Deliverance, it's available in Jesus. On down the line. Social healing, relational healing, family healing. Check, 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 check. All of it is found in him. And so when Jesus comes, here's what we know. In fact, I have an ongoing, it's friendly and it's civil, but I have an ongoing debate going with a friend of mine who's a leader in Germany. And he says, there was no healing in the Old Testament. I'm like, well, there were a few. Look at this one, this one, this one. He's like, okay, maybe there's like six. I said, well, I think there were many more. Think of all that were bitten by snakes, and when they looked on the bronze serpent, uh, they were healed. And how many thousands were there? And so anyway, he and I go around and around. He thinks there's almost none. I think there's more. But the point is, somewhere along the way, in the life of the Hebrew people, they had forgotten that the Lord was their healer. And so by the time Jesus comes, there is immense sickness. There is immense difficulty. There's blind people. There's deaf people. There's crippled people. You got all this stuff going on, and they're not living in covenant with this God who called himself Yahweh Rapha. And consequently, they are not taking hold of the benefit that he offered them. Now, the, the reciprocal side of it is, not only had they forgotten it, in many ways they'd forgotten his ways. In some ways they were scrupulous to the letter of the law, 
but they forgot the spirit of the law. And in so doing, they were shutting down the flow of divine life and power that, that he, that the Lord wanted to give to them. Does this make sense? And so when the Lord sends Jesus, what he's really doing is he's saying, I want to make you a value proposition. This is the language of modern marketing. Let's renew the covenant. Let's start this over. And I'm going to give you a new and better covenant. That's what we say about the new covenant, right? Okay. I'm going to give you a new and better covenant. And because I'm giving you a new and better covenant, it's going to upgrade you from everything that you had. And so if I was your healer in the old covenant, what might it look like in the new covenant? Some of you aren't getting it. I'm about to go there. And so if, if God, the covenant-keeping God, the one who is all-powerful, the one who, is, uh, who gives no answer to anybody, who requires nothing, and the one who is self-sufficient, if he says, I am your healer, and that's the old covenant how much better is the covenant that we could be living in right now today? And so, you know, there's a big debate in the Christian community. It's been going on for decades, ever since really shortly after Azusa Street. And one side of the camp says healing is in the atonement. And they all pointed Isaiah 53 and it is written out there, he bore our sicknesses and carried our sorrows, but that's because of this very thing. That's part of the healing. And then there's another side that actually John Wimper represented this, and I, I think, for the most part, Randy Clark holds to this point of view today. Healing is actually in the kingdom. And I think it is. Jesus comes announcing the kingdom and healing happens. But I actually think the best and most um, holistic way of thinking about it is healing is in the covenant and the kingdom is the restoration of covenant now what does that mean well it means that sickness should flee before the church when we rise up against it it should be put down now those of you that are you know in my school you know that there are occasionally strongholds that we have to break down to get that healing but but our fundamental assumption is healing should be achievable with the exception of sicknesses unto death. Um, but Yuri shouted this out, so I'm going to uh, say this. Just a couple chapters on from Exodus 15, we come to Exodus chapter 23. And in Exodus chapter 23, the Lord says this, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars to pieces. The biggest part of what God is concerned about, it's not the only part, but the biggest part of it has to do with idolatry and the things that come between us and God, whether because we get tangled up in something as um, obvious as yoga or other things like that. And this was a grave risk in this era because, of course, you've got all these Canaanite tribes and all of their gods, and they're going to come right in amidst among them, and they're going to be tempted to worship them. But we have our own gods in our era. Scripture says greed is idolatry. America's the wealthiest nation in history. And, I mean, all of our marketing, all of our advertising is all about getting more and having more. So it's, it's fairly obvious that we have a problem with that. But anyway, let's, let's move on from that thought, and let's look at what the rest of this passage says. Exodus 23, 25. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. All you people with food allergies... Something's wrong if you have a food allergy. There are food foods, few foods I don't eat because I choose not to. I don't particularly care for them. Generally, I like most foods, you can tell. Um, but I'm not allergic to any foods. And we see people freed of food allergies of every kind routinely. Soy, gluten, chocolate. I know that would be a fate worse than death. Uh, dairy. <laughs> just down the line, but we, you see, we live in a nation that is besotten with food allergies, 
Why? Because essentially we have forgotten the Lord. And in forgotten, forgetting the Lord and turning away from him, we have lost what we all know this term because of COVID, herd immunity that God once put on our country. I mean, when I was a kid, nobody had food allergies. They ate anything they wanted, and that was just the way it rolled. Now people can't. Why? Because as we have forsaken the Lord in our idolatry, that blessing has been somehow I don't know if God's withdrawn it or we've pushed it away, but either way, we're not walking in it. And it's analogous to what Israel was in when Jesus came. You guys with me? We're almost done here. He says, you shall serve the Lord your God. He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. Now, Yuri said, he shouted it out, divine health. Nobody wants to go there. Nobody wants to preach about this. It's too extreme. Are we going to put people in condemnation if they're not walking in divine health? How are we going to you know, get to that end point? I don't know how we're going to get to the end point. I don't think they knew where they were going in the wilderness either. They just had to follow the pillar of fire and then the cloud. But what I do know is this is the covenant that God made with them. And when he sent Jesus, it was a restoration of covenant. We've got a new and better covenant. And so I think the Lord has this on the table as a revelation for this season, this era of the church. Now, I don't know what we're going to have to do to get that in action. That's a different conversation. We'll probably need to contend and we'll fall on our face a few times. I mean, they had their problems in the wilderness. But this is, I believe, part of where the Lord is taking us in this hour. And so when Jesus comes named Yahashua, it is a sign that Exodus 15, 26 and with it 23, 25 were still on the table. And it's still a sign today, a sign that our father wants to bring his people back into a fuller revelation of who he is, of what his intentions are toward us and how he is willing to use every aspect of who he is, all powerful, self-sufficient, answering to no one, in order to rise up on our behalf and to engage in whatever it takes to help us find the freedom we should have. And don't just think physically. Think of the other areas of your life that may be under some sort of a blockage. Now let's go back to this idea of bitterness and we'll close with this story. Maybe, maybe now eight or ten years ago, I've kind of lost track of when it happened, but I was in Indonesia with a friend of mine from um, Australia and we were ministering through the islands we had one meeting in which uh, um, he had a word for deaf people to come up. And there was a fairly good-sized meeting. I don't remember now, maybe 600, 700 people. But, um, but anyway, 10 deaf people came up. If you did this in the United States of America, all the oxygen in the room would leave. And the reason it would leave is that everybody would go, what if it doesn't work? God will be embarrassed. Nobody would dare say that out loud, but that's what's in our heads because we've been programmed. I heard someone say, yes, sir. That's right. <laughs> so the 10 come forward and then to like Elijah pouring water on the wood when he's going to call down fire from heaven. He says, we said, all right, now we want 10 newbies. You've never prayed for anybody. We want you to come up and pray for these 10 deaf people. Now we were going to coach them. We weren't just going to leave them there. But, but the point is, so we got 10 deaf people. We got 10 newbies. We line them up. And we pray once. And when we do it, four get healed. Well, that's a 40% heal rate. That's not bad. But it's not 100%. And so, you know, the four gave their testimony and they go sit down. And then uh, we went down the line. And it's all through a translator. But we asked every one of those six... Are you angry with someone? Are you bitter against someone? Do you have unforgiveness in your heart about something? We said it different ways each time so that if they didn't understand it the first way, they might see it with a different perspective the second way or third way or fourth way. And six out of six of them had some form of bitterness in their life. Now, anyone who deals in healing and inner healing or deliverance knows bitterness is like the number one obstacle you've got to go through. It was for them in this story. I'm not saying there aren't other things, too, but it's the number one that everybody has to confront sooner or later. And so um, many avoid doing that. Well, anyway, so these six, we got them to forgive whoever it was that they had their issue with. And then these newbies prayed a second time, and six out of six were healed, 100% healing. 
And I tell you that story as just an illustration of the Lord's intention when he says, I am the Lord your healer. And not only that, I will take sickness from among you. Now, I do think for them, he does mean specifically physical healing. But by the time you update that to Yahashua, the name of Jesus, and you see the word sozo in Greek, which is an all-encompassing form of healing, it's basically living under God's shalom, his fullness, then you can understand that no matter which dimension your life needs restoration in, you can find it. Well, we call this a, a, a season of breakthrough. That's what this weekend is, is titled. Uh, this is our closing sermon and we're about to close the service. But if you haven't had your breakthrough yet, before you even come up, I want you to meditate on this idea that the Lord is your healer. And I want you to meditate on it, that the Lord made you a value proposition when you accepted Jesus. And he said, if you understand who Jesus is, if you accept that name Jesus, Yahashua in Hebrew, then the very covenant I made here can be yours now. And let that become the thing that opens the gateway for you to the healing that you may not have received.